Welcome back to the Africa is a Country podcast. I am your host, William Shorkey, and you are listening to Africa is a Country's weekly talk and interview show on culture and politics on the globe, but from an African and left perspective. You can find us on whichever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Do subscribe, give us feedback, tell us what you think. Find us on social media. Africa is a Country is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, but more importantly, head over to africasacountry.com for new writing on politics on the continent from a left-wing perspective. Now, last week, or well, it wasn't last week, but the last time we had an episode, it was an interview with Professor Helen Thompson from Cambridge University on her new book on how energy underpins the multiple political, economic, social, and ecological crises facing the world. That book is called Disorder. If you haven't listened to that episode, do give it a go. And this week's episode is an interview with Nihal El Asa, who is a writer and researcher based in London, and it is on Egypt's economic crisis. Now, if you haven't been paying attention to what's happening in Egypt, don't worry, few of us have, but Nihal unpacks what's happening in the country and what we might look forward to next. So here it is. Joining us on the program is Nihal Al-Asa, who is a writer and researcher based in London, and she's written for various publications, including Jacobin, Verso, Africa's a Country, and recently, The New Arab. And that's why she's swinging by this afternoon to talk to us about her most recent piece, which is called Bread, Freedom, Social Justice on Egypt's Economic Crisis. Nihal, Thank you for joining the program again. And I want to start by asking you about Egypt and its place in the world at the moment. It seems like it's kind of disappeared from the radar unless people are talking about Mohammed Salah. But you've written this piece and it sort of warns of Egypt's ongoing economic crisis, which part of it, it has been experiencing for a while. Another part of it is exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as Egypt is heavily reliant on key commodities from there, such as sunflower oil and wheat. And so do you think there's anything? Yeah, tell us a little bit about what's happening in Egypt and why this is a political economic situation worth paying attention to. Sure. Um, First of all, thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure. Um, yeah, slowly becoming a friend of the show. You are, you are um, friend of the show. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, not a good start saying that Egypt is not as relevant as before. Um, that's why I'm here. I'm popularizing <laughs> Egypt again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like you said, um, recently uh, there's been um, a kind of like... a an economic crisis in Egypt that was exacerbated by um, the COVID pandemic and most recently the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, There's been a variety of measures taken by the Egyptian government um, responding to um, a plethora of what it seems to be um, really worrying crises. Um, uh, So in March, um, the Egyptian Central Bank took the decision to devalue the pound. Um, Some say um, it's just that the Egyptian pound depreciated, the value of the Egyptian pound depreciated. 
Um, it also took the decision to raise interest rates following um, the US Federal Bank. Um, this happened um, after um, the Russia-Ukraine war because mm. Egypt is currently um, the largest uh, exporter of wheat in the world, l largest import importer of wheat in the world, sorry. Um, almost 90% of the wheat it imports comes from Russia and Ukraine. And that raised a lot of questions regarding our food security. Um, also because of Egypt's extreme reliance on foreign capital, um, there was a lot of uh, capital, foreign capital flight after um, the Russia-Ukraine war because of um, increased instability um, in the worldwide uh, global economy. Mm. Um, so that also put Egypt in um, sort of a crisis. So these measures that the Egyptian Central Bank took um, were in reaction to what it considers to be, uh, you know, um, red uh, flags or like um, crises that needed responding to. Um, the Egyptian government also took measures to um, fix the price of subsidized bread uh, in um, uh, public as well as private bakeries as well. Mm -hmm. um, and this, some people see this to be in direct contradiction with the um, direction that Egypt has been taking over recent years, which has been to, um, you know, avoid regulate, regulating the market, stay away from prices, move like actually remove subsidies. Um, but the situation, the economic situation is so dire. And, um, um, you know, for me, it could be two reasons why the Egyptian government is doing it. The first of all is that um, people could actually die. Like uh, um, the price of consumer goods is rising so much. It's not only bread. It's um, so, for example, uh, people in the UK talk about, or the US talk about, um, you know, inflation rates now being the worst they've been in the past 40 years, and they're at 8%. In Egypt, it's currently at 13% now. Jeez. And um, it's not only wheat that we export, uh, also it's corn, which can be used as animal feed, and that directly impacts the price of other um, consumer goods like dairy, poultry, milk, um, that kind of thing. So um, if the price of bread is raised as well, then that would, you know, impact a lot of um, um, families in Egypt that rely on that. Um, so that's the first decision. That's the first reason why I think uh, the Egyptian government is fixing the price of subsidized bread. The second reason is that um, historically, uh, when the price of bread has been raised in Egypt, there's been some sort of, you know, political reaction after in the form of protest or other, um, what the government seems to be other uh, forms of unrest. Mm. How should we understand the longevity of these measures of support? Because I understand that at the same time as the state is temporarily fixing the price of key commodities so that they remain accessible and they stave against possible revolts. Uh, they're also approaching the IMF for, for a loan. 
uh, and that usually sort of foretells coming austerity. So how, how do you see the state uh, navigating that? What sort of uh, conditions might this loan include and how might that change the political economic situation? Yeah, so you're correct. Egypt has approached the IMF for um, um, financing with a financing request. It's still unclear. Like the IMF has just, um, you know, uh, released that Egypt has approached it for um, help. But um, the the loan, whether there's going to be a loan uh, or whether it's going to be other forms of financing, um, it's still unclear. they just say that they're in negotiations with Egypt, but, you know, the language is kind of similar to, um, you know, the language that they used before Egypt got its, um, you know, $12 billion loan in 2016, um, considered to be, you know, the second biggest IMF loan at the time after Argentina. Um, Some of the language, including like fiscal and monetary prudence, um, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, there's also, um, um, you know, talks that there could be a further depreciation of the Egyptian pound, um, which is also, which could be a really worrying, um, a development as well. Um, Egypt has already started exporting wheat from other countries like India, for example, but of course the, you know, wheat prices, wheat, wheat prices are higher now. Um, the long-term effects of that are unclear, but it seems like it's still stuck in this vicious cycle of, um, you know, seeking, um, you know, foreign financing. There's obviously we're we're heavily reliant uh, reliant on um, financing in the form of aid from Gulf countries as well. Um, so um, it seems like it's going to still be in the cycle of debt for a while. Mm. And one of the one of the things I, I saw in the news recently that the state is already doing is is privatizing uh, a range of state owned companies. And interestingly, a lot of those companies under CC's regime are militarily owned and controlled. Do you think that should be read as an example of a trend of austerity uh, continuing? The fact that a lot of these companies are run by the military, does that sort of change our assessment of of whether or not this is noteworthy? And I wonder to what extent is this viable for CC's regime, which has been this military state, if now measures are are taken that are antithetical, presumably, to the economic interests of the military, which has been CC's support base since he took power? I mean, that's always been a contradiction um, in the Egyptian economy, right? Um, uh, With the state. And um, that's a line that a lot of um, critics of the government use, but a lot of critics um, who are are mainly supportive of, you know, free market capitalism um, or um, that kind of thing. So what the argument is, is that if the military is, heavily involved in the economy, um, which it is, um, uh, then that would scare away foreign investors, which it does. 
Um, and the argument is that if you know the military retreats away from um, uh, you know uh, being heavily involved in the economy, uh, having their factories being involved in tenders, then that would bring in more foreign investment. And that might be the case. And that's a lot of, uh, you know, you see a lot of op-eds about that. You see that in, you know, um, IMF conditions, that the military needs to, you know, retreat from um, um, fully participating in the Egyptian economy like that. Yes. But I'm still not sure that that's the main, you know, problem uh, with Egypt's economy. If you look at it from, you know, a Marxist lens, uh, yes the military might be taking a big chunk of the economy but there's still um you know the egyptian business elites who are yes. um mostly um active in you know um real estate uh finance uh, other forms of speculative uh financialization um i feel they have more concentrations of capital and um uh, than you know the military, which might be a hot take, but that's just my opinion. It does, yeah, that does sound that does sound correct. Um, and you know, I wonder is is that is that CC's sort of power play at the moment to make this concession that undercuts the current involvement of the military in the e economy. Uh, but making sure to ensure that the interests of Egyptian capital are, are, are untouched? Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of factors uh, at play here. Uh, it's hard to know, like, it's really difficult to know because of, you know, the lack of um, transparency when it comes to these things. But some tensions do arise when uh, you could see that um, forms of coercion um, by the state uh, can also affect um, uh, business elites. Mm. Uh, for example, um, there are conversations about um, the military reportedly um, you know, forcing business elites to invest in the new administrative capital that CC is building um, outside of Cairo, um, which is, you know, a large um, gated community um, that's supposed to hold um, all government um, institutions and which, you know, embassies and uh, government institutions um, are supposed to, you know, migrate to in, in the near future. Mm. Um, so even though um, there's still no economic um, benefit to investing in the capital now as it currently stands um, in the desert outside of Cairo. Um, there's some talks that, you know, um, the government is forcing um, investors to buy there, buy properties there and invest in it. Mm. So these tensions, um, you know, um, can come to the surface, but um, it's still unclear. Um, how it will be dealt with mm. that's an interesting that raises an interesting question for me because uh i wonder the extent to which how what is what at the moment is cc's approach to consolidating his power 
uh, I find it interesting that still he prefers not to be affiliated to any political party. Egypt's ruling party was dissolved in 2011 and Sisi has continued to maintain that he has no intentions of of reinstalling it. And so his power base feels like it lacks any sort of uh, durable institutional roots. Um, So as his regime, I think, continues to to wade through a, a difficult period and a period that shows no indications of of easing up for him. What's yeah? Where does he at the moment draw the majority of his support, and how does he extract loyalty to his project? I mean, um, loyalty to the project mostly comes from um, like I think I think CC's political project basically is to you know, steer clear of any um, protests or movements that could lead to another 2011. So I feel the current raison d'etre of the project is, you know, fear of 2011. And you can see that manifest itself in different ways. Uh, But unlike with other political projects that also see, you know, consent and um, invest in, uh, you know, even like manufacturing forms of consent or um, doing that sort of thing, you see there's a glaring absence of that. And it's mostly based on either coercion or either um, playing on existing fears. Uh, You see a lot of discourses around like, oh, we should be um, CC uh, or 2013 stopped Egypt from becoming Syria, stopped Egypt from becoming Libya, like failed state. at least you have stability now, at least, you know, um, there's a stable economy, there's no um, terrorism. Um, so that kind of rhetoric is happening all the time. Um, and that's also coupled with some, um, um, like in the, in the media, like the media is mostly state owned, but, you know, there's been a lot of TV series that, there's a famous TV series called Lechtiar, The Choice, that, that basically recounts um, 2013, what happens in 2013, but obviously the, you know, the state's version of that. Mm. And, um, it was like the third iteration of it was aired this year. And there's already like an actor playing CC <laughs> and that kind of thing. And like the, you know, the Muslim brotherhood are like you know, highly demonized in the show. And, you know, that's happening while CC is still in power, like, um, mm. which I think is a bit, Strange, but you see a lot of uh, Egyptians um, buy into that narrative of like, yeah, like at least, yeah, there might not be like popular enthusiastic support or like a buy-in to his project, but um, the support comes from the fact that, you know, at least on the surface level, it's not like, you know, a failed state. Mm, mm. that I think provides us a, a very interesting, uh, a very good transition to talk about uh, your most recent piece in Jacobin, uh, which is about Allah Abdel Fattah, who is a renowned activist from 2011 and that has been imprisoned by the Egyptian state since 
2019. He's currently been on hunger strike, I think, entering his 49th day today. I, uh, I saw the recent news is that he was transferred from Cairo's Torah prison complex to Wadi al-Natrun, which is just north of the country, and was able to get a visit from his family. And your Jacobin piece was a, a, a review of a collection of essays written by Al-Fatah called You Have Not Yet Been Defeated, Selected Works 2011 to 2019. And you've, you've partly answered it now, but the question I wanted to ask is, why does the Egyptian state fear him so much? So Ali Abdel Fattah is uh, one of Egypt's very high profile 60,000 political prisoners. Mm. Um, he comes from a very political family. His father was a human rights lawyer, a famous human rights lawyer. Um, his mother is politically active. His sisters were also very politically active and had their own stints in jail. And he spent the majority of you know the last decade in prison. Um, I sought to review his book because I thought um, his case and um, the collection of his essays could act as a, you know, a small microcosm of political life in Egypt currently. Mm. And um, he, Ale himself, um, you know, was very politically active from a long time ago, like for as long as I remember, um, he's been participating in protests from before the revolution, like trade union protests, um, that kind of thing. Um, he comments and takes positions in real time. Um, he's a techie, he was very, and a blogger, he was um, very uh, intent on, you know, democratizing access to the internet, uh, promoting citizen journalism, um, that kind of thing. So his case, um, uh, so, so because of his activism, because of how um, you know loud spoken he's been, yeah. uh, he's been the target of um, um, repression by you know, any incumbent Egyptian regime, and he's been in and out of jail um, for the last ten years. He spent seven of the last eight years um, in prison. Um, and Ale is not alone, you know, like Ale's case is known uh, because of the reasons I just outlined, but there are other political prisoners in um, jail right now suffer suffering similar fates. Um, but I just thought Ale's case um, could highlight, um, you know, Egypt's political life as it stands. One of the things you highlight about the significance of Ale relates to the significance of, or relates to the extent to which the Egyptian left has declined. And I'd like to read something you wrote in the article, which says okay. that to understand the significance of Ale, one must situate him within the context of the over half century long decline of the Egyptian left. It is not an exaggeration to say that the Egyptian left has not recovered from the country's 1967 defeat to Israel in the Six Day War. The defeat symbolized not only the end of pan-Arabism, but most importantly, Arab socialism. So could you tell us a little bit about the highlights of that defeat and how, even in spite of that defeat, a moment like 2011 still happened? And we'll get to it, but how 
where the left has been since 2011. Sure. So Alet's case and, you know, the collection of essays that were published under his name um, made me think about the longer processes that led to 2011 to the current moment and where we have to, you know, organize politically about uh, um, to get someone out of prison and how that organization can sometimes take, um, you know, individualized forms and not and and it's not really collectivist in nature um mm. i'm not obviously you know criti critiquing any form of organization because that's the only form of organization that we have left for us um in an era when um the left is really weak and that any form of um critique or you know if you even think about organization in egypt um that you know can constitutes the security threat to you um, and um, to think about how that happened we have to go back to the Nasser era and um, because um, you know considered Egypt's only um, hegemonic moment and uh, what happened then was um, that was the moment itself was a third worldist moment um, there was political structures in place. It was a world historical moment. Um, and Egypt was engulfed in this um, anti-colonial um, struggle. It was a world of um, revolutions. Um, and then the Nasserist project was part and parcel of that. Um, um, and, um, you know, it's a, I, I, I like to see Nasser with nuance, like some people, um, for some, Nasserism was a failure because um, of the lack of, um, um, so, sorry, for some, Nasserism was a failure because it failed to, to sustain itself after his death. And for others, Nasserism was a promise. Um, and you could see that um, spilling over into the Sadat years as well. Um, so there are several moments that emerged during Nasser's time that were considered victories, for example, the Suez crisis, which resulted in Egypt um, nationalizing the Suez Canal. Um, there was the land reform uh, project. Um, there was, um, you know, nationalizing um, the pro it was a process of industrialization. Um, all of which were considered to be, you know, um, attempts that were considered to be um, anti-imperialist in nature and um, uh, that were, you know, for lack of a better term, that was going against what, you know, Western powers wanted from uh, Egypt at the time and not only Egypt, um, other countries that were uh, emerging out of this colonial moment. Um, you know, critiques to Nasserism then emerged that um, with his death, there were no mechanisms in place that would um, help curb um, the counter-revolution of neoliberalism and the counter-revolution that um, Sadat brought with him with his open-door policy or infiteh. Um, there wasn't um, strong resistance to it uh, because of you know, um, lack of um, political cohesion of the left. Um, 
possibly um, made possible by um, Nasser's imprison imprisonment of large factions of the left and uh, you know not allowing um, political parties or that's you know one of the arguments there um, and obviously um, during Sadat's time there was um, there was still some workers resistance of course like I talked about that a bit um, in my latest article and it's um, the bread uprising of 1977 yeah. um, when Egypt took out its first loan from the IMF and like had its first structural adjustment program, um, which a condition of which was to remove subsidies from bread. And immediately um, people took to the streets and um, utilized some of the language that was, um, well, that was prevalent during Nasser's time. And, um, you know, with the idea in mind that a state should um, act in a certain way and provide welfare to its citizens. Um, and um, immediately, like after a brutal crackdown by Sadat um, that left maybe 100 people dead, he still re reversed um, those uh, policies and like subsidies were not removed from bread. In that sense, I would say that you know the Nostrism project um, still had um, some um, you know after effects mm. um, that um, while Egypt that curbed that actually curbed the um, neoliberalism project, and you could see that until today uh, with you know. Um, when we think about social welfare, when we think about you know guaranteed employment, free education, that kind of thing that were introduced to not, uh, during Nasser's time, um, even after all of these years have passed and after all, all of the you know IMF programs and like the neoliberal turn that the world took, um, people still expect the government to provide them um, with basic welfare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, N Nasser is such an interesting figure to think about. I don't, I, I'm not sure I answered this, your question. Well, I, you, you've answered it pretty well. You, you, you've answered it pretty well, and you, you've raised uh, another another line of thought that I'm I'm interested to hear what you think. Which is that I think you know Nasser for me typifies what I think happened across the continent, which is during the 20th century, you had these charismatic visionary leaders at the helm. And the sequence is once they're out of power, the left, so to speak, that surrounds them starts to dissipate as well. And in South Africa as well, as in Tanzania related to Nyerere and in basically any country you can pick, here on the continent, I wonder to what extent is it that since Nasserism, the left declined, or or maybe we should interpret Nasserism as, and as you've described, providing a kind of ideological horizon, so a way of imagining an alternative form of social organization where the state plays a very central role, but at the same time that belies the like there wasn't probably that much organizing happening 
You know what I mean? Like in the, in the like we maybe perhaps overstate the extent to which the left uh, of the 20th century was coherent, had deep penetration in workplaces and communities, um, and that a lot of it was was hitched to the programs of these charismatic leaders. And and part of part of the weakness of the left in Africa has been that since the disappearance of these leaders on the scene, we've kind of not really known how to organize um, independently of that and can only really ever sort of harken back to the ideological horizons that they they raised. But in terms of like the actual effort to, you know, organize, that's not really been um, initiated. At least I'm generalizing from, you know, the South African case, but feeling like this is a case that's mirrored elsewhere. I mean, yeah, um, that's not a defensive um, anything, but sometimes it's, it, it was a it was a specific moment in time and it, there was a context there. And sometimes to defeat forces that are anti, you know, democratic, as one would say, um, there is no other way outside of being a strongman. Like we've seen that with, you know, Cuba, like Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez, like Nasser was fighting the US, he was fighting Britain, he was fighting Islamism. Um, and um, some extent, to some extent, he was trying to, you know, exist within this unique moment, um, um, the, you know, the non-aligned movement, that kind of thing. And sometimes um, that that was one strategy, and that strategy is, um, you know, quelling is 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 you know through a state-led, um, you know, national anti-imperialist project, yes. and that's where the contradictions arise from that. The, the failures of the, not the failures I don't want to say failures but like um, you know we have to think then about the relationship between the workers and the state and what happens um, when um, the workers themselves are not included in that project if it's like a top-down project yeah. Um, um, uh, yeah so like it, with his state-led um, national project, um, the workers and peasants were included, like the leadership of trade union movements were controlled. Um, and um, yeah, like I said, that was a strategy and you know, whether that strategy was correct or not is up for interpretations. And we've seen this glaring paradox um, then this interesting moment manifest itself with if you see um, you know writings from the time by Egyptian leftists and Egyptian communists um, who were actually jailed by Nasser like there were Egyptian communists jailed by Nasser who were in jail supporting Nasser and came out of jail supporting Nasser and his project and um, yeah that was you know you can read all about this mm. uh, you know, Arwa Salah the stillborn captures the melancholy of this moment. Um, and um, yeah, there, it, it was a very complex moment. And I think um, we need to see it with the nuance that it deserves. Um, mm. one, one thing that is interesting about, about 2011 is, is that it, it sort of departs from, from national liberation as the 
ideological framework through which to understand, you know, emancipation, self-determination and all of that. And, and sort of thinking about the legacy of 2011 and, and, uh, Allah, yeah. What do you think has, has there, has a, a, a kind of, um, intellectual foundation emerged since. So uh, one, one writer who I find very uh, interesting in terms of thinking about 2011 is, is Asif Bayat and his book, Revolution Without Revolutionaries, is a critique of the Arab Spring and I think in general, the social disorder that emerged worldwide after the 2008 financial crisis. And he characterizes sort of the movement of the squares as being these moments which were sort of grand repudiations of the status quo, but which failed to present any sort of alternative um, or present any program for, for change um, and were for the most part calling for reforms. I think your review of, of Allah's essay collection in, in Jacobin kind of problematizes that a little bit, but by and large, what's your assessment about, about the legacy of 2011 insofar as our capacity to think of alternatives? And I think Bias has a new book that's out, which sort of talks about um, how everyday life in Egypt might serve as an example of that, even though it's not uh, a way of presenting alternatives that's collected in a treatise and published, um, but yeah. Well, yeah. question, but <laughs> whatever yeah. you make of that, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so not to hearken on that point and just to make clear, like, um, I keep going back to the Nasserus moment because mm. uh, um, I think it was, you know, a lot of people have written about this, but I truly think it was the, you know, the most, the only hegemonic moment in Egypt's modern history and that the three, um, you know, projects three regimes that came after it were either in response to it in reaction to it or you know a repression to it and um i think it's um uh, truly important to look at this moment and understand you know um think outside the binaries of um failure and defeat and I know we've talked to, about this before um, because it can limit like it's tr it's a truly reductive way of looking at you know complex historical moments um, that otherwise capture momentous fail to capture momentous and life-altering events like it's easy to say oh the Nostrite project was a failure in a tragedy it's easy to say 2011 was a failure in a tragedy but like that doesn't capture how it was truly life altering for, you know, some people and like, uh, the, it fails to, to look at the process that it, it's, it's set in motion. Um, like, yeah, it, it would be good to examine where it failed and where it succeeded, um, how it fell apart. Um, and I think um, the framing that we can use and, you know, Sarah Salem says this, like to look at these as like unfinished projects that we can pick up at a later stage. Mm. Um, and I think the problem now, and it's a global problem, is that the left is living in a moment of defeat. And, um, you know, 
in the post um you know in the in the 70s and like post the washington consensus moment and that kind of like neoliberalism the counter-revolution of neoliberalism we need to think about you know the world which we live in yeah. and um um not to hearken back on this like materialist analysis but like if we think of the global economic system um you know there needs to be a shift in the entire global system for um um in order for like we can't exist in like our little silos like egypt's economic situation will not improve on its own especially if it's um largely dependent on um uh, or like it's at the whims of the global financial system. Yeah. And obviously that's not only due to like global factors, like there's the global factor, but there's also the choices made by the governments. But um, as you know, the years go by, we've seen this dependence continue to increase. Um, so I don't think like I can see any change without, um, like there could be, no change without like social true social transformation and you know radical changes um there can be no democracy i think without the democratization of society and um yes. social progress um like even if let's say tomorrow um you know the current re egyptian regime decides to hold elections like straight away and like do democracy in the electoral sense um unless there's a complete like social transformation or like social overhaul yeah. um and um you know like a sovereign project of sorts um like i don't see how that could be considered you know, a radical change and like we can think about ways in which to do that um in our current global moment um um but yeah that's i think that's the tension that exists I mean, what what are some of those ways? Because I think you 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 capture very well the extent to which I think there are quite a number of constraints, both domestically in Egypt with the climate of repression, which is tremendously severe, both internationally, given that the capitalist world system still subjects countries at the periphery to the whims of what happens in the core. Uh, the Russia-Ukraine war being a case in point testament of that. So, you know, the constraints seem incredibly decisive. Um, but even in spite of that, what what do you think, at least in Egypt, are are some of the openings for for a campaign for radical social transformation to be mounted? I mean, I think Allah's what one thing that is really I think remarkable about Allah's case is how how widespread it's it's reached um how in spite of him being in prison uh in isolation at the mercy of of others this is still his story has still not uh faded as i i assume the egyptian government wants and it certainly does feel like at least at the level of of um at the level of 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 the war of ideas, um, the arguments for social transformation have more or less won. You know, bread, freedom, social justice. I think, I think no one really contests that that sounds like a a persuasive program for 
for a different way of of being. Um, but as far as as openings to to, to make that a a concrete reality um, in like in Egypt, where where do you see that happening, um, if anywhere? I mean, yeah, um, I think the biggest challenge is to you know not to fall into the knee jerk reaction of just being anti the current moment or the current regime, but to try and think of a vision of like what we want the alternative reality to be like is it um anti-imperialist is it socialist in nature is it you know what type of you know how does gender factor into it um those are the, the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about um but also that's um difficult to do when you know a lot of your loved ones and friends are in prison or are you know, under risk, under security risk. And, you know, you start thinking in the, um, that campaigns should, you know, form around only getting people out of jail. Um, while that is really important, we also need to think about the ways in which uh, to organize our society um, in case of any potential ruptures that might happen in the future. Um, and this, I think, would be the biggest challenge. Mm. Nahal, thank you for for coming on to to the program. Uh, yeah, no answers from you. How could you? But <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, raise a lot of uh, um, pessimism of the intellect, uh, optimism of the will. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for mm-hmm. you by and. A reminder of who Nahal is. Nahal is a researcher and writer based in London and has contributed to various publications such as Jacobin, Africa as a Country, Verso, and The New Arab. And Nahal, thank you so much for coming onto the program. We look forward to, to more writing from you and to hopefully come back again, uh, where we will both hopefully have some, some answers. Uh, but, but until then, as you say, read, write, reflect, think, and envision. And from me, Will Shorky, you have been listening to the Africa as a Country podcast. Catch us again next week. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.